All right, so we're going to go through these five chapters in John. And I really have a conviction after having reread these multiple times um, here this week that this statement is, at least for me, really true. These are the five, at least consecutive, uh, most radical chapters in the Bible. There are some really unusual uh, statements in here. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Dear Father, thank you again for this um, time that we have together. Be with us as we go through these uh, chapters in John that describe what you did and the conversation that you had with your disciples in the upper room. Uh, Please help the importance of these words to sink in and to have greater meaning uh, for each of us. Amen. First, I want to establish a little bit the setting for what is going on between Jesus and the disciples coming into the upper room. Okay, so we know that it was kind of a chaotic situation. In uh, Luke, we read that there was the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for some way to kill Jesus. However, they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas, one of the twelve apostles. And Judas went to the chief priests and the temple guards and discussed with them how he could betray Jesus. So uh, we're all aware of this. We know the, the mindset of Judas coming into the upper room. But I think we don't uh, emphasize enough the mindset of the disciples in the upper room, which was also not good. This is repeated so many times in the Gospels. In Mark 9, they came to Capernaum, and after going indoors, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they would not answer him because on the road they had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down, called the twelve disciples, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Okay, so um, this is repeated if we would just pull out all the times this is mentioned in the Gospels where the disciples are always wanting to go a little higher and Jesus is telling them, no, my kingdom is upside down. You want to be first, you have to be the servant. And then he proceeded to put a child on his lap and to, to make an illustration out of that. Okay, but they did not seem to get the message because in the upper room, I mean, it's, it's unthinkable to me, really. Jesus is about to go out and lay down his life. And here is what is going on in the minds of the disciples and in the conversations that the disciples are having. An argument broke out among the disciples as to which of them should be thought of as the greatest. Isn't that remarkable? Just when you read about the disciples, the things that Peter said, doubting Thomas, um, how they, they seem kind of dull throughout the Gospels, and the argument is, who should be thought of as the greatest? And Jesus said to them, the kings of the pagans have power over their people, and the rulers claim the title friends of the people. But this is not the way it is with you. In other words, kingdoms of the world, this is the way they're structured. It's top-down. Okay, that's, that's what we're used to. That's how kingdoms of the world operate. But it's not the way it is with you. Rather, the greatest one among you must be like the youngest. And the leader must be like the servant. Who is greater? The one who sits down to eat or the one who serves? The one who sits down, of course. But I am among you as one who serves. And so he's, he's correcting that idea again and again and again and again but it doesn't sink in. So here's what he did. 
So Jesus and his disciples were at supper. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, the thought of betraying Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew that he had come from God and was going to God. And some of you probably heard me go through this before, but I, I want to just pause and imagine what options did Jesus have at this point. He's trying to tell the disciples, my kingdom is not like a kingdom of the world. It's not a kingdom where you lord it over people and you try to get to the top. It's a kingdom where you go to the bottom, you come under people, you serve. And he said it many times, but now he did something. And if we just kind of imagine, forget what happened, but what would you do? You're trying to get this message through to your disciples and they don't get it. What kind of an action, what could you do to really drive the point home? Okay, I like Graham Maxwell said, well, maybe you could have called out she-bears, right, in the Old Testament. She-bears come out and chase the youths around and at least have them peek in the window a little bit and a and little, little intimidation, perhaps, to move the disciples in the right direction. But, of course, what Jesus did in recognition that he, the Father, had given him complete power. There's a power. What, do you, what does God do with power? Okay, and here's what Jesus did. So he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist. And then he poured some water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel around his waist. When we read things like this, we shouldn't just read on. Let's, I mean, we really need to stop, imagine, it takes a while to wash 12 pairs of feet, don't you think? And uh, the disciples here, there's, there's chatter, there's arguing about who should be the first and do you think that the room quieted down as their master, their Lord, got up, took his outer garment off and knelt and started washing feet? And he started at one end. Um, just what do you imagine the, the, the tension, the feeling in the room at that moment? And how do you imagine Jesus washed their feet? Um, and did he skip Judas? Okay. No, we don't have anything on, on record there. Some have argued that he, he may have started with the feet of Judas. Maybe that doesn't matter. But no, he washed 12 pairs of dirty feet, including the one who would betray him. Okay, this says incredible things about God. The one with all the power, and this is the way he acted in that circumstance. So after he'd washed their feet, he put his outer garment back on and returned to his place at the table. Do you understand what I have just done to you, he asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and it's right that you do so because that is what I am. I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You then should wash one another's feet. And the meaning here is not, please do this as a ceremony periodically, okay, although that's fine, but the meaning is this is the kingdom life. This is the way you are to live from now on. Okay, whatever we call Christian, it looks like Jesus. It looks like service. We come under people. Okay? Some people have called this towel power. Okay? When we exert power as a Christian, it is by coming under people. It's by serving people. It's not coercively. Okay? That's the Jesus way. And he said, I have set an example for you so that you will do just what I have done for you. And now that you know this truth, perhaps that even God is the kind of person who would do that and that that is the kingdom way, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. 
And I have tried, you know, we don't wash feet, of course, back in that day, walking around in sandals, your feet get dirty, so you, your servant comes and washes feet. So we can't identify with that culture and practice. So forgive me, this is not a perfect illustration, but I've tried to imagine a modern um, example of this. So let's just say you are in a surgery residency, okay, and you have been doing, um, what is surgery, four years, five years? Uh, it's a long residency, and let's just say you, you happen to have been working with a, uh, a real guru, top surgeon in the country, who you have just idolized, and it's been a great experience, your residency, um, but this surgeon has been continually trying to say, you know, medicine is, um, is a specialty of service. Okay, the, the mindset of a physician is service. We serve, that's what we do as physicians. But deep down, the surgery residents are thinking about what well, coming down to the end of this residency and what is in store, money, fame, that the secret thoughts are really not at all oriented in that direction. The secret thoughts and wishes are for fame and with that power and money and that that is what is really dominating the thought. So we'll make our physician here omniscient and uh, he's aware that those are the thoughts. So what would he do in that circumstance? So here's maybe what I would imagine. That suddenly he's gone. You don't know what would happen to, to our, our surgeon here, our mentor. And you look around and finally someone says, oh, he's out in the parking lot. Okay, and to your shock, you find he is washing your car. Okay, and not just superficially, but chrome, detail, uh, maybe even vacuums the inside and does all kinds of things. And you watch uncomfortably as he moves from one car to the next and to the next. And would that help to drive it home? That, um, no, this is not the way I want you to think and act. And here I am, your mentor, your teacher, I'm washing your car. Not a perfect example, but I, I imagine that's, that's kind of the message for the disciples and the message also for us. Okay, Jesus is God in human form. He has all power. Okay, but yet he chose to serve and that's the example for us to follow as well. It's an incredible story that uh, we, we only get in the Gospel of John. Now, as we move into John, I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, this individual, but um, what's his name? Randy Posh, I think. Yeah, he had uh, pancreatic cancer about five or six years ago. And he's uh, quite a well-known individual, teaches uh, at a university, taught at a university, I don't remember where. And he knew he was going to die in a few months. And so he gave a last lecture, which has been viewed, I don't know how many millions of times on YouTube, but it was kind of, this is what I've learned in life. Okay, and I want to share my wisdom with you. And it's, it's really a good, I think they're making a movie out of it, actually. Um, the words of Jesus in the upper room, do you, would you agree that what he's going to tell his disciples would be things that he would prioritize as, this is it, this is really important. Um, this is what I want you to, to take away from all this. We don't have a lot of stories, words, and actions of Jesus after the resurrection. Okay, this is the last lecture. Okay, he is giving his disciples uh, the meat, the essence of the message. And so it's very interesting to consider what Jesus told his disciples. <clears throat> I'm not going to go into this because we've kind of uh, been redundant on this one point, that John never deviates from the central message that Jesus is God in human form and that he came to reveal 
the Father to us, the character of God. And so I'm, we could pull all of those verses out of this passage, which I'm not going to do. I'll just say it's, it's central to what he told his disciples. Okay? Again, he claims to be the I am. Okay? Incredible title from the Old Testament. And, of course, we have the famous conversation that we've read between Jesus and Philip, where Jesus said, Now that you have known me, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That's all we need. And Jesus answered, For a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? That is the central message of John. And so that comes out again um, in Jesus' conversation with his disciples. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, and again, I won't go over this but because we did it last time, but it is in this upper room conversation that Jesus repeats four times what the Holy Spirit is going to do. The Holy Spirit will come. What does he do? He reveals the truth about God. Jesus comes to reveal what the Father is like. The Holy Spirit to each of us comes with that same message. He reveals the truth about God. Okay, so that's central. But now I want to uh, focus on some of the other things that Jesus talks about. And, and here's something that is, again, redundant in this conversation. Jesus said, and now I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Is this the first time in the Bible that we hear these words? No? I think it's just no one has ever really done it before. And so Jesus says, okay, you want to call yourselves Christians? Here it is, the new commandment. Love one another. Okay, how do we know what love is? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. Now, love is a word that is overused. You know, I love pizza, and we hear it in songs and all kinds of things. Um, but let me just hear from you a little bit. What, what do you hear in, in the words here? When Jesus says, here is the commandment, here's how everyone's going to know that, uh, is going to know that you're my follower, your love for one another, um, put some additional explanation. How, what does Jesus mean here by love? Yeah. I think to place their importance above yours, the importance of yourself. To put the importance, put others, prioritize others above yourself. Okay, an other-centered kind of a focus. Yeah, I like that. Um, any other thoughts? Yes. Right. So I think what you're saying here, as I have loved you, how did Jesus love us? He came under. He served. He died. He laid down his life. That is, that's love personified. Right. So what we see Jesus doing, uh, I think, is exactly right. That's how we want to live our lives. Good. Any other thoughts about the word love? Yes. Okay to practice inclusion rather than exclusion. It is interesting, uh, who was Jesus hard on during his ministry? It was the, the religious elite. Um, how did Jesus treat the outcasts? He was welcoming, he ate with them, he drank with them. Some have suggested Jesus was crucified mainly because of who he ate with. Okay? Remember how much he was hated for his treatment of lepers, the woman caught in adultery, and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think... We want to be Christ-like, so we should also treat those individuals the way we see Jesus treating them. So I think those are all um, some good thoughts. Now, it is interesting that in uh, Greek, we may have talked about this last year, I don't remember, there are four different words here for love. Okay, the word used here is agape, 
But it's worthwhile contrasting a little bit other words that can be translated as love. Eros, we can kind of hear erotic in that, so that is more love of a sexual nature, the feeling of being in love, okay, would fit there. Storge is um, more like, uh, you know, you have an uncle or an aunt that you see once a year at Christmas, and you know, there's familiarity, you enjoy seeing the person again, talking with them, but it's, it's more of an affection through familiarity, that type of love. Phileo, of course, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So this is an affectionate, sentimental, passionate love, brotherly love. So this is positive. But just to contrast this with agape love, phileo is based largely on emotions and feelings. So those would be somewhat subject to change. Okay? Agape is much more of a decision than it is something that is emotion-based. Okay? So what is agape love? And I'll just make some claims here. That agape love is love in its highest and truest form, the love of which there's no greater. Certainly we see that in the uh, New Testament, just how it's used. And again, it is based on a decision. It's a decision on how we're going to treat people, how we're going to relate to others. It is not primarily based on emotions and feelings. And I like what you said, that Agape love really is a selfless love that sacrifices for others. So when we have words here in the upper room, when Jesus said there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends, that giving of self for others, the word used there is agape. It's a sacrificial love. Okay, so some quotes here on agape. It is a love which keeps loving when its object is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, or completely unworthy. It gives 100% and expects nothing in return. Okay, and, and I like this one also, that agape love in its essence is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. So if we just look at how agape is used. Of course, our famous John 3.16, God so loved, and agape involves giving, sacrifice. He loved so much that he gave. That's an agape love. And in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians, we have a definition of what agape love is not. It is not, whoops, I'm used to this, it is not self-seeking. As you said, it is other-seeking. This ties in very much with the whole thing about um, service. Okay? It is directed outward to others. And so if we just read, it's amazing how, how central this is to the Christian message um, in the New Testament, but I would say it's rather neglected compared to the priority of um, a doctrinal list. And again, I'm, I'm never putting down doctrines, but what we call Christian, it looks like Jesus. It looks like this agape love. Let's, let's make that the, the centerpiece. And so Paul in Galatians, instead let love make you serve one another. There it is again, it's a service. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment. All the laws, all the rules were the purpose of this one thing, to bring us to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in Philippians, don't do anything from selfish ambition. That's what the disciples were doing. Or from a cheap desire to boast. But be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourself. Now how difficult can you even imagine living that way? I don't think this means that you have a low opinion of yourself. Okay, you're not putting yourself down in the process. You are it's trying to direct your thoughts outward to the needs of others. Okay? You are you're more concerned about others. 
Look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. And again, in Romans, in brotherly love, let your feelings of deep affection for one another come to expression and regard others as more important than yourself. That's the whole thing. It's, it's just a reversal of our whole way of thinking. Okay, but, but this is radically different. That's Jesus trying to move us towards that kind of a kingdom. How would you like it if everyone around you lived and thought this way? I mean, that would be a, quite a world, wouldn't it? I mean, this is what heaven is going to be like, as, as I imagine. Okay, so that's agape love. And then Jesus said, those who love me will obey my teaching. What's his teaching? Love one another. My father will love them, and my father and I will come to them and live with them. And so I can say just from my own experience, it, it's difficult, and certainly by grit and effort, you cannot live this way. You, you have to, I think, admire that God is this kind of a person and just get wrapped up in admiration of that. And then some things uh, begin to happen. But, but I have noticed that when there really is this kind of agape love, when that kind of uh, uh, is manifest, there is a, a very close connection um, with God as well. I mean, the, the two things go together. In fact, we cannot love God and hate our neighbor. Okay, the two have to go together. As we love God, we love our neighbor. And as we love our neighbor, we love God, and, and the two are merged into one. Okay, so Jesus continues, I love you just as the Father loves me. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, again, what is the command? It's to love one another. You will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My commandment is this, in case you missed it, love one another just as I love you. The greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I said these are the five, at least for me, most radical chapters in the Bible, and here's another example. I do not call you servants any longer, because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends, because I have told you everything I heard from my father. Now, does this apply to us? Or is this uh, just for the disciples, the master-servant relationship? Um, don't you think this applies to us as well? And I, I just want to hear your thoughts on this because, of course, God is infinitely greater than us. We're not putting ourselves on an equal plane with God here. But Jesus is saying, yes, the master-servant relationship. Uh, that would not seem to be the ideal. Rather, friendship would be a better way of describing um, the way that we are to relate to God. Um, what do you think about that idea? Is that, um, it does seem to maybe change the way we think about God. Um, how do you see a difference between this kind of a relationship and uh, a friendship relationship? Um, what do you think Jesus is trying to relate here? What, is, what would you say is typical of a master-servant relationship? What does a servant do? Yeah, servant just does what the master tells them to do, right? Is there understanding? No, you just obey. Is there anything wrong with that? Um, well, we can, we've, we've learned we can trust God, so we should obey him even if we don't have full understanding. But it would seem if we go back to this verse, what is the transition here? I don't call you servants anymore. Why? Because servants do not know what their master is doing. So understanding what God is up to understanding the, the motives 
and, and what God is doing in the world and understanding the message here, the gospel, all of that understanding, it would seem, is important in bringing us from just, yes, we are obedient servants to something that is much greater, friendship. And I've thought about um, three individuals in the Old Testament who I would say were friends of God. One was Moses, and we even are told he was a friend of God. He spoke face to face with God as a man speaks with a friend. And so when we look at the... Um, the way Moses related to God, it was as a friendship. There was an understanding. There was a, a real communication. Definitely an intimacy, I mean, face-to-face. Honesty. Okay, and as I read uh, just something that Moses said to God here, this could sound very irreverent, but is this how friends talk occasionally? So Moses turned to the Lord again and said, Lord, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he's treated them cruelly, and you have done nothing to help them. Okay? And the next verse is not a lightning bolt from heaven uh, to Moses for saying that. So, of course, I'm not suggesting you know, we, we be disrespectful, and, uh, but I think, let's say you see something horrible in the hospital, a great injustice, a child is killed by a drunk driver, whatever it might be, and you go home that night, does God want you to be honest and to say this was not right and to have a conversation? I think the Bible very much encourages us to be open and honest and God would rather have that kind of a prayer than a prayer that we think God wants to hear. I think God wants honesty and that's, I think, a, a characteristic of friendship. And just as another example here, the people are rebelling at Mount Sinai and God said to Moses, now don't try to stop me. I'm angry with them, I'm going to destroy them, and then I will make you and your descendants into a great nation. Now, we would not talk back to God if he said, now don't try to stop me. And maybe we'd be pleased to have a whole nation. But of course, Moses, in the most remarkable thing here in the Old Testament, I think, said, please forgive their sin, but if you won't, then remove my name from the book in which you have written the names of your people. Is that a type of agape love. I, I think that what God was doing here, yeah, we could have just had the story of rebellion you know, through the Old Testament and that's, that's pretty much the theme. I think God is wanting to say, hey, I know the heart of my friend Moses and I would like to reveal this. And so Moses quotes, talks back to God and I think God was delighted. That is the ideal. Moses is willing to give his own life for his people and is even at the offer here of making a great nation out of his own um, children. So that's a friendship, even willing to, to speak back to God. Uh, another friend that we read in James is Abraham. Okay, and Abraham, of course, his friendship is highlighted because he trusted God and friends trust each other. Okay, so that's another uh, quality, I think, of uh, friendship. Okay, there's mutual trust. But of course, Abraham, remember, also spoke to God honestly. When God came and talked to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham said, well, you, you can't do that. You're the God of the universe. Okay, he, he engaged in this conversation. Again, the understanding part. Masters don't know, or servants don't know what their master is doing. Friends try, at least, to understand. And, um, oh, another, I didn't realize I'd skip forward here, is Job. And Job, again, wanted to understand. That's the hallmark of a friend. And all the way through, Job even complains, but he's wanting to understand. How I wish I knew where to find him and knew where to go where he is. I would state my case before him. 
and present all the arguments in my favor. I want to know what he would say, how he would answer me. Would God use all his strength against me? No, he would listen as I spoke. I am honest. I could reason with God. He would declare me innocent once and for all. And of course, in the very end of the book, God comes and says, Job, you've said of me what is right. In contrast, so this is a friend. This is a friendship, a desire for friendship. In contrast with the three friends in Elihu who said, I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? God's power is so great that we cannot come near him. I think that is one of the biggest points to get out of the book of Job. Job is revealing what a friend of God looks like as he wrestled with God through this whole situation. The friends reveal, boy, we want to keep God as far away as possible. I won't give God a chance to destroy me. Okay, so, so Jesus is trying to, uh, again, in our minds, yes, we've needed the master-servant relationship. The ideal with God is friendship. Okay, two more, I think, very, very unusual things in John. But first, I just want to highlight this. Jesus said, I have much more to tell you, but now it would be too much for you to bear. Don't you wish we knew what he would really like to tell them, but they couldn't bear? Uh, yeah, I wish we did, but they couldn't bear. But it seemed like he couldn't help himself. Okay, he has the promise that, well, the Holy Spirit is going to have to reveal some of this to you later. Okay, but he, he comes on with two more uh, very, very radical teachings. Okay, here's one I have honestly never heard a sermon preached on this passage, but I just find it uh, remarkable. Jesus said, I've told you these things in parables or veiled language, allegories, dark saying. Yeah, we've used lots of parables, lots of dark speech, but the hour is now coming when I shall no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I shall tell you about the Father in plain words, openly, without reserve. So, what I would just like to say here is wherever we want to go, let's go somewhere in the Bible to find out about the Father. Wouldn't this be it? Jesus has already prefaced it by saying, okay, we have lots of dark speech, lots of parables, lots of things that are difficult to understand, but the hour is now coming when I will no, no longer use figures of speech. I'm going to tell you about the Father in plain words. Okay, wouldn't this be it? Whatever we think about the Father, whatever images we have, this, I think, would have to be where we would start. So I'll read it in another translation. I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. When that day comes, you will ask him in my name, and I do not say that I will ask him on your behalf. Now, that's kind of interesting. I will not, Jesus will not ask the Father on our behalf. When we look at some other translations, this is, it's stronger than ask. It's intercessory language that's being used here. In the Phillips translation, I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. And in the Good Speed, which was the first American translation of the Bible, and I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you. So, what is Jesus saying here? There, there seems to be a prophetic when that day comes, but there also seems to be a now revelation to his disciples that Jesus will not ask the Father on our behalf. He will not plead with the Father. He will not intercede with the Father. Okay, and we just imagine what, what is he getting up to. And the, the remarkable thing that comes out of this, why? 
for the Father himself loves you. Now, we have lots of images in the Bible about Jesus pleading, the Holy Spirit pleading, intercession. And it seems that what Jesus is saying here is that there is an understanding. When that day comes, I do not say that I will ask him on your half. I will not plead, intercede with the Father. Why? Because the Father himself loves you. And I think, um, well, let me just see how that strikes you before I uh, go on. What, I mean, this, this scene, we, we have so many images of Jesus pleading with the Father. Of course, Jesus is our intercessor. But what do we do with words where Jesus says, okay, let me tell you plainly about the Father. There is no need for me to intercede with the Father for you. Why? Because the Father himself loves you. Um, what do you do with these words? I think, by the way, if you have a Friday night or something, you're just looking for... I mean, these chapters in John are, are well worth just reading slowly and, and meditating on. Okay, but this is an unusual passage. Any thoughts? Does this destroy our whole model of Jesus pleading with the Father? Yes. Yeah, so um, there, there seems to be both a now, because Jesus is saying, saying the hour is now coming, Okay, and when we get to the end of all of this, the disciples say, now you are speaking clearly. Now we understand. So I think for the disciples in that moment, Jesus wanted to say this truth about this whole relationship. But I think there is also this, this kind of a prophetic. If we want to look at an end game, what is really, whatever we want to put up on a pinnacle, uh, this is ultimately where we want to get in our understanding of God. I think there is also that, that kind of future prophetic um, to us that uh, Jesus is talking about. Okay, any other thoughts? That's a good question. I, I, could, be, I could be completely off on this, but to me it seems, it takes me back to um, the prayer of our Father which art in heaven, hallowed mm-hmm. be thy name, and how Jesus is trying to teach us that prayer, mm-hmm. to teach us to have connection with the Father. There's not this, there's not this disconnection that's that needs to be there between us and the Father that we have to go through Jesus to get to the Father. Mm-hmm. There's this friendship relationship that we can have with Jesus, with the Father, with them all. It certainly does seem in John that Jesus is trying to close the gap between what we see in Jesus and what we see in the Father. right? And it seems to really reach a climax right here. So let me just say a little bit about uh, intercession. And, and I mentioned uh, to you that the disciples, after he said this, said, now you're speaking plainly. Now we get it without using figures of speech. So what about intercession and Jesus as the intercessor? So let's just read some verses on this and discuss the concept. In Hebrews, that is why he, Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him. He can do this because he always lives and intercedes for them. And here I would just like to make a point that intercession, uh, we often understand, I think, to mean that Jesus is somehow shielding us from the Father. Okay? But intercession is Jesus bringing us to the Father. The intercession is to, not to change the heart of the Father, to change the Father's mind. It is to bring us to God through him. So we, we need Jesus as an intercessor, Okay, but it's working the other direction. It's bringing us to the Father. That's how intercession works. In Romans, 
At the same time, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray for what we need, but the Spirit intercedes along with our groans that cannot be expressed in words. And what did we just read last time? All of the verses in John about what does the Holy Spirit do? He brings us the truth about God that Jesus came. Okay, so the intercession of the Holy Spirit is also working in the same direction, bringing us to the Father. Okay, and the last one here in 1 John 2.1, I'm writing this to you, my children, so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, sin, which is a distrustful, rebellious attitude against God, we have someone who pleads, intercedes with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So intercession is absolutely necessary, but... It's necessary when we are in rebellion. What, is, what do we see in Jesus? He comes almost unnoticed and very quietly taps us on the shoulder and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He restores our trust in God. He brings us closer and closer to the Father. And so when we are you know, in a rebellious, distrustful attitude against the Father, Jesus is the one who intercedes to bring us back together. Again, it's never shielding us from an angry father. It is, it is bringing us to the father. And so I think this, this message, what Jesus is saying here in John is, um, yes, intercession is very important. And you've been afraid of God and I came to, to show you what he's like. But when you realize that the one in between, that the one in between the father and us is God, when the one in between is seen to be God, then there really is no one in between. And I think Jesus is just recognizing that reality. The one in between us and the Father is God. And as much as we harmonize Jesus with the Father, we see that the Father himself loves us. There is no one in between. Okay? Now, the last point, and Jesus finishes with this, moves into the verse we probably quoted the most in this entire Bible study, and that is the beginning of John 17, where Jesus, after finish saying all of this, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son, so that the Son may give glory to you. For you gave him authority over all people, so that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. And let's clarify, what is eternal life? And this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God and to know Jesus Christ. That the, the essence of eternal life, yes, there is a longevity part of it, okay, but the more important part is the quality. Okay, and that eternal life is something that begins in the here and now. It has to do with this relationship, the whole thing we've been talking about. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that we can see with clarity that the Father himself loves us as much as Jesus. We know that, and that springs all of these wonderful things that happen within us. That is the essence of the eternal life experience. Okay, and how do we know that? The only true God and to know Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus. And then finally, Jesus said, I have shown your glory on earth. And he did not walk around as a big, bright super being, right? This is a character revelation. I've shown your glory on earth. I've finished the work you gave me to do. And again, what was the work? I have made you known to those you gave me out of the world. So really this whole passage from John 13 to 17 does come down to this essential truth and I think all of the things that um, come out of that. All right, so I'll just make one more plug since a lot of you weren't here. Uh, that This Friday night at Damaso Amphitheater, come here, Tim Jennings, psychiatrist. I think it will be very good. All right, and let's pray as we conclude. 
Father, thank you so much for these chapters that we have in John um, that tell us what you did, what you said in the upper room. And certainly there is a depth here that, um, that we really uh, cannot grasp, but help us to understand more fully uh, the importance of your words. Help us to begin to experience uh, this knowing eternal life experience in our own lives. Amen.